never done this before, but thank the Lord for iPhones. Um, that's one of the things back in the old days, you know, I didn't have to mess with technology, just pick up a Bible, and that's one of the big limitations. I don't have a Bible that I can read uh, without a lot of magnification and that kind of thing. The contrast didn't write, so bear with me, and I apologize for that, but uh, sometimes that happens. I usually bring all of my stuff with me just in case something like this happens, and of course tonight I didn't, and stuff happened. Lesson learned, right? And uh, the title of the message tonight is Five Things That You Can't Learn Too Early. These are some things that as you read through Ecclesiastes, have you ever noticed sometimes it's hard to tell whether Solomon is speaking out of carnality, bitterness, sin, all of that kind of stuff, and when he's saying something that you go, hey, we probably ought to pay attention to this. And I was... Uh, doing some uh, research on this earlier in the week. And it was interesting. And how many of you have ever listened to J. Vernon McGee on the radio? Now, J. Vernon thinks this is Solomon's seventh attempt at self-justification. But when I read it, it didn't seem that way to me. In fact, it seemed to make some sense. And I learned something from it. And there's some practical advice. Is it coming out of his mess-ups and of his uh, cynicism and that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it really is. But it also is something that is worth our while. Sometimes you can learn from people in the negative. Have you ever done that? You ever had a job where you learned a lot from your boss and you learned how not to be a boss? Or maybe there was somebody training you and you learned how not to train somebody else? And I think with Solomon, sometimes we look at these things and we come to the conclusion, this really does make sense, and it really is a good and practical thing for us, even though Solomon didn't actually do it. But when he came to the end of his life, he's giving us some advice that comes out of his own heartache, out of his own failure. So Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 5 through 9. And he said, It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. And you know, in our world today, there's so much emphasis and availability of music, and there's a lot that is really the song of fools. And there's some music that if you listen very much to it, you're going to be depressed you're going to have a lot of stuff that's going to enter your mind that you don't really need there. You've got to be careful. And sometimes you may end up where you so identify with the song that you take on a problem and a depression that you don't even have. It doesn't even apply to you. The song of fools. And sometimes it's just the opposite. When things ought to be serious, there's somebody that is laughing and cutting up and singing and going on like nothing's really wrong. The song of fools. That's an interesting term. Verse 6 says, For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. It's emptiness. The crackling of thorns. They would take thorns, dried thorns, and use them for kindling to get a fire started. Or maybe they would throw it on the fire to kind of give it a little bit of a boost. But you think about the crackling of the thorns 
under the pot. And Solomon says, that's the way the laughter of fools is. You know, some people laugh when they ought not laugh. Some people laugh and it's a joyful thing. It's a happy thing. Some people laugh at the wrong time and it just grates on you. It's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Do you remember about 20 years ago, there was a thing with uh, Rodney Howard Brown from South Africa and they called it the Laughing Revival. Did you ever see anything like that? And I saw some things on YouTube clips where uh, Rodney Howard Brown and Kenneth Copeland, they were first of all speaking in tongues back and forth to each other and dying laughing. Now the Bible says anytime tongues comes up there's supposed to be an interpretation, right? And uh, they just went right over that. And then I thought about this verse as they were just laughing, tears running down their face and nobody knows what's going on but the laughter was kind of contagious. And I thought like the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of fools. And yeah, I said fools. I thought about what James said when he told us sometimes we need to quit all of that and we need to weep and we need to mourn. It seems like today there's not any real seriousness about sin anymore. It seems like every show you watch, they laugh about blasphemy, they laugh about adultery, they laugh about homosexuality, they laugh about lying, they laugh about deception, and all of this is called comedy, and it numbs us to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the seriousness we find in the Word of God, and now we find that that kind of stuff is sort of invading the church. How long has it been since you've seen somebody broken over sin? How long has it been since you've been broken over sin? Because you can remember a time when you were. You can remember a time when you were under conviction. You can rem remember a time when you knew you had some decisions to make and you had to give some things up. Do you remember days when... Instead of people just laughing and looking for a good time and a good feeling, they would come to the altar and they would weep and people would gather around them. And when they walked away, you might see a package of cigarettes laying up there. What was that symbolizing? A person saying, I'm surrendering to the Lordship of Christ instead of the Lordship of Winston or Salem or whatever, right? Used to be a time when you would see people that would come up and they would be weeping at the altar and they would be weeping over some sin that they had committed. They were weeping over something that was bothering them. Or they might be in the altar weeping about someone else they were concerned about. But we're more interested in feeling good, getting a good quote, getting likes on Facebook and Twitter, instead of dealing actually with the sin that comes into our life. And this tells you how that sounds to God. Like the crackling of thorns under a pot is the laughter of the fool. This is vanity. It's emptiness. It doesn't get you where you want to go. Look at verse 7. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And the end of a thing is better than its beginning... The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Now, when I look at that, I find some things that are very helpful and some things that are very, very practical in our lives. And what I found uh, when you look at the first couple of verses here is that the test of love and maturity is honesty. Uh, you've heard people say, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Did you know that's most of the people you know? It might even be you. Because if anybody told you the answer to the question that you asked honestly you might get offended. You might ruin the friendship. You might find anger rising up in you, which he tells us is something that resides in the heart of a fool. And somebody really could help you, but they're afraid to be honest. Now, I'm not saying be rude. I'm not saying be mean. I'm not saying to do anything like that at all. And you do have to use a fair amount of wisdom on all of this. But I think that you can tell how mature you are as a Christian by this one thing. How well can you handle the honesty of a rebuke? Not everything is sunshine and roses. Not everything is as good as it ought to be. Not everything is top shelf. Sometimes things are bad. Sometimes they're not thought out. Sometimes they are maybe a little foolish. And somebody asks you a question, maybe your wife, Maybe your husband, maybe your children, maybe your parents, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it is someone in the, the church in a Sunday school class, and they ask you a question that if they told you the truth, you wouldn't be able to get over it. You know what that says? You're not as mature as you think you are. Here's the flip side of that. If someone asks you a question... And instead of answering them honestly, lovingly, you cover it up because you don't want to hurt their feelings. The truth of the matter is you don't really love that person, not with a mature love. And this destroys marriages because there are things that can fester in a marriage year after year and sometimes decade after decade. And then it comes up and it comes up Maybe when there's a divorce threat. Maybe when there's uh, counseling that's taking place. Maybe in a counselor's office or in a pastor's office. Because I've seen this. And something comes up. And then the other person, highly offended, says, Why are you just now bringing that up? Why didn't you tell me about this years ago? Well, it doesn't take long to figure that out. You tell the truth sometimes even in a covenant marriage. And it's not worth the price. The other person can't handle it because they're not mature enough to know that just because you tell somebody the truth, even if it hurts, you can do that and actually love that person. You can do that and be helpful to that person. But really only if that person is able to receive that. And there are some times... When a friendship or a marriage relationship really needs the blunt and brutal and open honesty to know really how you feel or how the other person feels about a certain issue so that you can actually be in unity. 
But it seems as though today, if anything doesn't go our way, you're criticizing me, you're condemning me, you're judging me, you're rejecting me. And it may not be anything like that at all. It may actually be someone that wants to help you. And if you think about a physician when you go into their office and they have the audacity to tell you you have cancer, do you storm out and say, I'll never go back to that doctor again? Or do you actually say, thank you, I hate to hear this, I'm kind of in shock, but I need to know this. What do we do now? And you let that person who hurt you, you let them hurt you further, don't you? It's amazing. And yet when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ, when it comes to... Maybe even a pastor who needs to tell you something. Instead of receiving it in love, there's some people that just leave. There are some people that just quit. There are some people that get angry about things. They get defensive about things. And instead of getting the help that they need, what happens? They would rather hear the song of a fool they would rather hear the person who is going to soothe them, entertain them, make them feel good about what they're doing, and they do it to their own destruction. So that's one of the first things you can't learn too early in life. If you really want to know how mature your love is, then here's where it is. How well can you take a rebuke? A deserved, honest, helpful rebuke. How do you do with it? That'll tell you how mature of a believer you are. Secondly, notice this. Solomon mentions a bribe and he mentions oppression. Actually, he mentions the oppression first. Now, we can kind of understand that oppression, something that is forced upon you, something that is unjust, something that is a persecution, something that, you know, those kind of things. And then he mentions a bribe. Now, when I looked at those two things, I thought, well, how did those two things fit together? And he is telling us here about there are some things that come your way that you didn't ask for and that you don't want. They are like oppression. They are forced upon you. Somebody who is oppressed, they don't ask for, for oppression. Someone that is oppressed, they were maybe born into it because of the color of their skin or because of their economic situation or because of the nation that they were born into. You know it would have been just as easy for you to be born in Cuba under communism as it would be for you to be born in the United States of America under freedom. And we think about even in our own country, the land of the free and the home of the brave, there have been oppressed people over the years of our country. That's an ideal that we haven't been able to live up to perfectly and probably never will because we are a nation of imperfect people. But it is a high ideal and a goal, liberty and justice for all. God-given rights to pursue um, uh, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness those kind of things doesn't happen all the time sometimes people are oppressed on the job sometimes we find it even in the home where there's a, a an authoritarian authoritarian person can be a husband can be a wife but they always have to have their way and they're always putting down and controlling the other person and so that honesty just can't really come out like we said in point one, so you just kind of go along to get along, and resentment and all of that is in there. And then 
you find that you feel oppressed, you feel controlled, you feel manipulated, that's something that is forced on you. Now, what's the difference between that and a bribe? Well, when somebody bribes a person, that's when you're a willing participant. And they tell you if you will vote a certain way, maybe you serve on a city council in a city like Chicago where there's been a lot of crime and corruption. And someone comes up to you as an alderman and they tell you if you will vote a certain way, we will put this much money into your campaign or into your personal account or something like that. And it's a bribe and you cooperate with it. Can you see the difference? Sometimes it's forced upon you and you can't do anything about it. Sometimes it comes your way and it's kind of flattering. It kind of makes sense to you maybe. Maybe it helps you out of a difficult economic situation. Maybe it gains you the promise of maybe stepping up the ladder or something like that. One is forced and one is willing. You know what that led me to believe in point number two? Something you can't learn too early. The devil will take you whichever way you want to go. He is slick. He is cunning. He is deceptive. And he knows you. He has his demons watching you. Observing you. They know your DNA. They know your family traits. They know how you were raised. They know your sore spots. They know your scars. They know where you're tough. They know where you're successful. They know where you fail. They know where you trip up and they watch. And whichever way it is that you're willing to compromise, sometimes they do it by force. Sometimes it's an all-out attack and an assault. And sometimes they hem you in and, and you're kind of cornered and you don't know what to do. And uh, how many times have you heard somebody say, when they do something that is wrong and something that is foolish, well, I didn't know what else to do. And that may be true. Maybe they were ignorant of what God said in his word. Maybe they just felt trapped and they didn't see any other way out. And so they were kind of forced into doing something that they shouldn't have done. Now, that's not really true, but that's the way they felt and that's the way they thought. Maybe it's because of an oppressive government or oppressive laws, different things like that. Uh, those kind of things are forced upon us. What's going to happen um, before too much longer when people that are of the LGBT persuasion are going to, well, there's, there's already been, even this past week, there's been a bill proposed that kind of throws evangelicals a little bit of a bone that says uh, anybody who discriminates against the LGBT community is going to, that's going to be illegal basically. You can't do it. It's discriminatory. Except, and they make a few bubbles like maybe in a church setting, maybe you can do it. In other words, my freedom of speech would be kind of preserved here but I better not say it anywhere else which means it's not free speech at all right that's called throwing you a bone to say okay and and they don't say this but this is what they're really saying are you hearing me sometimes you have to read between the lines so to speak what they're really saying is you can preach your little fables for now 
for now. But if you ever notice, once that starts, it doesn't stop. Once freedom is squelched and confined to certain places, it never stops there. It never stops there. You're free to talk about it now, but you better not talk about it at uh, Cracker Barrel. You're free to talk about it in your church building, but you better not be talking about it to your neighbors. You're free to talk about it in your Sunday school class, but you're not free to teach your children those moral truths. So that's where this is heading if something doesn't stop it. It's going to head to where it says you don't have the right even to teach your own children your morals and values. And from there, it starts going to things like this. Ready for it? Well, if you believe the Bible is truth and the Word of God, you're mentally unstable. Only crazy people believe that. And crazy people are not qualified to be parents, so we'll take your children and we'll educate them the way we want them to. You have to keep your mouth shut. Those kind of things. It's happened in other countries. It's moving that direction here. You start thinking about whenever they kind of throw us a bone, what they're really saying is your right to free speech is pretty limited. And anytime they start to limit that, they're playing God. Okay? And when they start playing God, they don't stop until they get what they want. And that's the direction that we're moving. When you think about that, and you think about who you're going to vote for in upcoming elections, you better not think about just party. You better not just think about your traditional voting patterns. You better not think about those kind of things. You might ought to think about what kind of people do they surround themselves with? Good people or bad people? Now, in an imperfect world, you're, not, you're never going to get a perfect candidate, are you? You might ought to look at their advisors. Who do they hang around with? Because while a person that is like a president or a senator or something like that or a governor, they may be the head. But boy, that neck is really important to the head, isn't it? In fact, my neck controls what my head does. That's why I've jokingly said, I am the head of my household. Yeah, but I've got a wife who is the neck. You ever, you know what I'm saying? Well, that's a joke. But when you talk about a politician, sometimes it's the advisors that they have around them that are more powerful than the politician because they influence them. And so when you see someone, and I get, I'm, a, I'm a conservative, okay? Full disclosure, I'm a political conservative. And I get really, really tired of being used by people who run on conservative principles and then govern like a liberal. Don't you get tired of that? I mean, come on, just be who you say you are. But they know they won't get elected. They won't get the vote of people like me and maybe people like you unless they say certain things and play a certain game. 
And so then what happens, they begin to govern in a different way. Have you ever noticed, for those of us who kind of lean toward the, I don't lean to the right, I'm on the right. Just short of Attila the Hun, I think. And uh, have you ever noticed that whenever a judge is appointed to the Supreme Court, that the ones on the left never disappoint the liberals by becoming conservative? But the ones that are supposed to be conservatives, how many times have we been disappointed when they headed to the left? That's the culture that we live in. And we are not dominant any longer. Do you remember a day in Oklahoma when they said, well, we could never pass liquor by the drink because there are too many Baptists? Well, that's not a problem anymore, is it? Remember when we voted down in 1997 or 8, we voted down casino gambling in Oklahoma? Well, there's always a way around things when you really want to do them. And you never get those things back. Do you remember when they told us that if we would uh, let the horses run in Oklahoma, that was going to solve our problems with education? How well has that gone? And then they had the sin tax on tobacco. Well, that's going to get it. We'll make those smokers pay for education. Well, I thought we wanted less people smoking. And if they're smoking, they're probably going to die early. And guess what happens? They quit paying taxes and buying cigarettes. How logical is that? Why do you ever want to fund something as important as education with something you're trying to stamp out and something that people who do it are going to die what in the world are we thinking here and I look at politicians and I look at government and I look at those kind of things and I'm seeing encroachment we'll take one step controlling you a little bit more and limiting your freedoms but it's not that bad and it really doesn't affect me right now it's affecting Delise and Joanne but it's not affecting Gerald right that's good so we take another step in a few years and another step. And now we don't even think about these people. But now I've got Gerald and Barbara in my sights. And we just take a step and another step. And if you give them an inch, they will take a mile. Now, when I think about all of that, that's all one big, long, hairy illustration to say this. What you see going on in the world, what you see going on in the physical realm is very similar to what goes on in the spiritual realm. You see, when you start playing games and compromising with the enemy, the enemy might say to you, you're not going to get away with any of this, and they just pounce on you, and you're in trouble. And there's nothing you can really do about it because you're trapped. That's why you have to pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. Sometimes you fall into traps you can't get out of very easily and you can only get out of it with the Lord's help and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, right? Sometimes the devil just says, just a little bit. That's not really going to affect you all that much. And your conscience bothers you for a while. But you can get over that over time because your conscience, Paul said to Timothy, can become seared. And you don't feel it anymore. And what happens then? The devil takes another step. He offers you something. He gives you something. In other words, there's oppression. That's by force. 
And then there's bribe. That's coercion that you cooperate with. You saw benefit in it, and you're willing to take it. And you know what? He doesn't really care which way he gets you as long as he gets you. Does that make sense? And you see that when Solomon talks about that, and he's talking about it in real life, and we've all seen those kind of things take place, and there's all kinds of corruption in our world and in our government and that kind of thing today. But notice here the devil's behind it, and surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason. I mean, it changes the way you think, doesn't it? I mean, I promise you, I promise you, if we rounded you up and put you in a Nazi concentration camp, your thinking necessarily has to change. You're not going to act the same way. You're not going to reason quite the same way because of the oppression. But then it also said, and a bribe, something you think is going to benefit you that nobody's going to know about, it debases the heart. And that's where everything really happens, doesn't it? When your heart's in trouble, you're in trouble. When your heart's in trouble, and I'm talking about in a spiritual sense, you're in trouble. That's why the Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Boy, is that ever true. Thirdly, notice this. He says in verse 8, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So that leads me to this. What's another thing you can never learn too early? And that is simply most evaluations are too soon. Why? Because the end of a thing is better. See, there are some things we have determined, oh, that's good, but we haven't seen it all the way to the end. And when we get to the end, we go, oh, no, 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 that was bad. That was a terrible thing. Sometimes we evaluate somebody's life. Oh, they are a good man. They are a good woman. They are just, just good, good, good people. Have you ever had a good, 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 good person betray you? You ever had a good, 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 good person just flat out lie to you, deceive you, twist you on something, cheat you on something? Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of things happen. And they happen because we are so short-sighted. We evaluate things. Sometimes it's a ministry. Sometimes it is a person. Sometimes it's a marriage. Sometimes it's parenting. Sometimes it's a business. Anything like that. Oh, boy, you can count on them. Boy, you can trust them. They are good people. And then 20 years later, you're going, wow, why did I ever get involved with those people? Why did I ever do that? Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes we evaluate something as being bad. Have you ever been in something that when you were in it, you hated it? You were begging God to get you out of it? 20 years later, you look back and say, I praise God for that event now. Because if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I am today. God really did bring beauty out of ashes. God really did uh, restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Now, what's the problem? You and I can't really evaluate things. We're way too hasty to call something bad and something that is just evil and wrong, and then we find out later on God was in it. I always think back to my hero in the Old Testament, and that is Joseph. And when Joseph is sold out by his brothers, who originally intended to kill him, 
And then they decided they could make some money off of him and they sell him into slavery. Can you picture him, what he is like as a, a, a boy about 15 to 17 years of age as he is chained up to that Midianite caravan and he's being drugged across the desert. Can you imagine as he screams, Don't do this! Don't do this! This is wrong! This is wrong! Can you imagine how he must have felt? Have you ever been made... <coughs> To go somewhere you don't want to go. And to do something you don't want to do. That was Joseph. Nothing he could do about it. I admire him because when he's a slave of Pharaoh. The next time we see him. He becomes the head over all of Pharaoh's household. That tells me that Joseph. Even when he was in an impossible situation. That he did not want or did not ask for. What did he do? He just did his best and tried to serve God. And there was some element of faith, even though he didn't understand what was going on. He had had those dreams of everybody bowing before him. How does that happen in Egypt? Well, if you ask me in the short term, I can't answer that. You ask me in the short term, and I might be able to say, Joseph, Joseph, just remember, God is faithful to his word. And if Joseph were to say, how does this fit into any of the promises of God and the covenants of God? I'm a child of Abraham. I'm supposed to be over there in the promised land. What am I doing here? How can I ever be that person in my dreams that is bowed to when I'm a slave of Potiphar? But somehow, Joseph always did his best, walked with God, and God blessed, the Bible says, God blessed the Egyptian because of Joseph. But wouldn't that be something if it were written about your life? That that crummy job that you have, that God blessed that company because you were there? That God blessed that family because you were in it? That God blessed that neighborhood because you lived there? Boy, that would be quite, a, quite an accomplishment. I would be pretty satisfied with that. But that wasn't the end of the story because even when Joseph does what's right morally and doesn't give in to Mrs. Potiphar's seduction, what happens to him? He ends up in jail. You, you think slavery can't get worse? I'm telling you, there's almost no situation that can't get worse. And sometimes it gets worse even when you do what's right. Now how does this fit? Not only am I a slave, I mean, at least for a while I was the head over the household. I was the number one slave. But how does this fit? Now I'm not even that. I'm in prison. I'm in a dungeon. And he's there for years. And uh, what are you in for, Joseph? Because I wouldn't give in to Mrs. Potiphar's seduction. I protected my master and I protected my integrity. And this is what you got out of it? Yeah. Well, this is bad. I mean, I could see myself being Job's wife and saying to Joseph, just curse God and die. None of your dreams and none of the promises are ever going to take place, not here. But see, you and I read that too fast and we know the end of the story because the end of the story, Solomon said, is better than the beginning. And what does the end tell us? Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream and Joseph ascends to be number two in the Egyptian empire, a world empire. And there he is going from slavery, going from a criminal to second in command over the whole empire. And what happens when Joseph's brothers need food? They come to Egypt and who do they stand in front of and who do they bow before? Joseph. And don't you know in his heart... 
the Holy Spirit was saying to Joseph, I told you, I promised you, I told you. And Joseph did more than just feed his brothers. One of his brothers was Judah. What tribe was the Lord Jesus Christ from? The tribe of Judah. Joseph, by giving grain to Judah, was preserving the bloodline of our Savior. We look back at that and we say, praise God for Joseph. Joseph might want to tell us when we get to heaven, not so fast, buddy, that was a lot harder than you think it was. Why? Because Solomon is right. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. And sometimes we're too quick to call something good and we latch on to it and find out, oh, I attach myself to something that is no good. And other times we turn things around and we say, there's no possible way this can be any good. And the Lord says, you haven't seen the end yet. Wait till I finish and then you'll see everything come to pass. Hold on, child of God. You haven't reached the end yet. And when you reach the end, it'll all make sense and you'll see the work of your God. Somebody say amen to that. Hold on. Press on. Press on. And then the fourth thing that I noticed as I looked at these uh, few verses here is that uh, to be quick-tempered is really just to be a quicker fool, isn't it? And sometimes we hear people say, well, I'm not going to put up with all of this. Well, I'm just not one to set back and just take things the way that they come. It may be that all you are is more of a fool than you'd ever like to admit. Because fools have something residing in their heart. And what is it? It's anger. And that anger is going to come out. Sometimes that anger comes out toward God. You ever known anybody that has just quit on God? You ever known anybody that just, what happened to you? They didn't like the situation in life they were in. They didn't like what was happening on their job. They didn't like what was happening in their health. They didn't like what was happening in the church. They didn't like what was happening in their family. And now they don't do anything. They don't serve God at all. Why? Anger. Anger. And you know what? Does that make their life any better? No, it's sowing seeds that, boy, they're going to pray for crop failure one of these days. But they are going to reap what they sow. And what happened? Anger caused them to do something that they couldn't get out of. Have you ever known anyone that spoke out rashly in anger, quick-tempered person, and they burst out and they hurt somebody deeply, and then they find out the rest of the story later on? And they go back and they try to apologize, and they should. And they should be forgiven. Even though you forgive somebody, it's really hard to forget it, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to forget it. Hard to overcome that sometimes. How many things would work out much better if you could get the angry person out of the middle of it? How many disputes could actually be solved if there wasn't anger involved? Now, is there a time for anger? Yeah, there is. There is. But it's very rare. And most of the time, our anger is not really righteous indignation, even though we would like to call it that. 
And so anger resides in the bosom of a fool. If you're a quick-tempered person, you ought not be proud of that. In fact, you need to die to that because to be quick-tempered means that you just have a quicker opportunity to make yourself a fool. So let's just wrap this up. Number one, O Lord, make us open and welcoming of helpful, helpful corrections. We shouldn't run from those. We ought to embrace those. That's somebody that loves you if they'll be honest with you. And make us, Lord, so wise that we see the enemy's work, especially when it doesn't look like the enemy. You know, Satan appears as an angel of light. They don't always come up and say, this is going to be destructive. This is going to be helpful. The person that takes the bribe thinks it's to their advantage. And Lord, make us to be patient and humble so that we don't judge others um, too soon, whether it's good or bad. And sometimes we do a little bit of both. We're just not good at it because we don't see the end from the beginning like God does. And lastly, make us see that a quick temper is a gateway to a foolish life and to great regret. I had a friend that I worked with in a church in Georgia, and um, I found out that uh, he's made a wreck out of his life, and he committed suicide last night. Three years younger than me. And you know what happened? He was the kind of guy that that last verse really um, describes. He had a quick temper and a lot of anger. And all of these things that we've talked about tonight would have described his life. Just mess up after mess up after mess up after mess up. And he was one of the most talented, one of the most um, fun people to be around. He was one of those kind of people that you just, that people flocked to. They would listen to him when he would speak. And then he kept just making mess up after mess up after mess up. And he got to the point to where he just apparently couldn't take it any longer and he took his own life. I, I look at that and I go, well, these are four things he sure could have benefited from if he had known them and lived by them. And you never know where somebody is because I don't think anybody expected him to be that kind of a person or to do that type of thing that he did. But you know what I've also found out? I've probably thought some things done some things, harbored some things that nobody would suspect in my life because I'm pretty good at covering it up. You don't let all of that out, especially in front of the wrong people and in certain situations. And you're good at that too. And what this is all saying is we had better get honest with ourselves and we had better get honest with God and quit playing the game because you do reap what you sow. And I would rather reap some good things than to reap a life full of regret to where the pain of all of it is more than I could bear and I just don't want to live anymore. That's a sad, sad place to be. And sadly, that's where a lot of people are going to end up. Maybe even you. I don't want you to end up there. There's a better way. There's a better way. Learn these things. You say, well, you know, you can't learn them too early. Well, it's too late for me. Well, here's the good news. It's never too late. It's never too late to start doing what's right and to learn these principles from the Word of God. So, question. Does all of this make sense to you tonight? Amen. 
Yeah, it's very practical. So second question, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Take it seriously. Please, I beg you. I beg you. Please, take it seriously. That's why God recorded Solomon's mess-ups in his word. For us to learn and take a warning from these things. Because they're too easy to fall into. Okay, let's pray. Father, as we are dismissed tonight, we are dismissed with a sense of seriousness. With a sense that we probably need to take these kind of things to heart more than we do. We don't know how much time we have left. We don't know how many opportunities we have left. And we want to finish well. And we want to finish joyfully. We don't want to finish bitter and negative and critical and filled with regrets. We'd like to finish well. And Solomon gives us some clues here that t teach us some very practical things. So, Father, teach us to number our days and teach us not to waste our time on frivolity when there are things we could be doing now, things that we could be doing today to help us be productive as we finish out our time here on earth. We pray for wisdom, and we ask for it because you promised to give it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing a little bit before we go. But uh, thank you for listening, and may the Lord bless you and drive these things deep, deep, deep into your soul. When we walk